0: How are you doing today, Manton? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure.
1: I'm Manton Reese. I am the founder of micro.blog. That's currently my big project. And I've been blogging for a long time. I have a podcast called Core Intuition. that I do with Daniel Jalkett and Mac developer, iOS developer.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. We met at Release Notes a few years, and then we chatted at Pierce Mm -hmm. a couple of months ago. Yeah. So it's good to catch up. I am a big fan of your podcast, and I love kind of the casual side of what you talk about, but also the business side of development. I've been following micro.blog for a while now. Where did you get the idea of micro.blog?
1: It really started going way back maybe six or seven years ago when I became really frustrated with Twitter, especially how they were kind of treating developers and discouraging all these great apps that we've loved over the years, like Tweetbot and Twitterific and and a bunch of other apps and kind of closing down the API. And I, I just became kind of disillusioned. And there are other social networks have come and gone, but I really got back to blogging more on my own site. And over the years, realized that, you know, we don't need to put all our content in one or two of these massive social networks, these silos like Facebook and Twitter. We can put stuff on our own site again even short posts. And so I started doing that. And I thought as I was blogging about it, it kind of resonated with people. And I did a Kickstarter to kick it off about three years ago, two and a half years ago. And that's kind of where the idea came from, just get people back to thinking about putting stuff on their own site. And at the same time, also, especially a few years ago, it started a lot of pushback against Twitter and how they were managing their network in terms of the, just the community aspects, like how did they deal with harassment? How do they deal with hate speech? How do they deal with those kind of problems that inevitably come up on a network? And so I thought we could have a different take on that. And so it's all around blogs on micro.blog, but there's discussions, you know, conversations and replies. And how can we make a great community that people feel comfortable talking and posting in? And so that's where it started. And we just kind of run with it.
0: Hey, I wanted to let you know that Empower App Show is looking for sponsors and patrons. Our audience is growing and we'd love to showcase you, your company, and your product on our show. If you want to be a patron, you can find us at patreon.com slash empowerapps.show. Or if you want to be a sponsor, reach out to me personally at leo at brightdigit.com. Your support is greatly appreciated and we look forward to showcasing your business and product on our show. How have you built your audience from the beginning? So when I
1: started to blog about these kind of ideas that I just quickly glossed over, I started a mailing list just to see, like, I told people I was working on something and I wanted to announce it at some point. And so I just had people could sign up for the email list. And I had never really done that. I've been blogging for years and years. I'd never done that kind of thing before. But I'm really glad I did, because when I started the Kickstarter, I was able to email all those people and say, go check it out. And that really got it started really well. Other than that, just building an audience just naturally by blogging and podcasting over the years, just slowly, no real plan, just putting stuff out there in the world that I think is interesting. And slowly, you know, people kind of catch on and, and start following the blog or following the podcast.
0: Now, this is available on multiple platforms, Correct.
1: Yeah, I mean, micro.blog is really, the core part is available on the web, and a lot of people just use the web interface, but then we have native apps for iOS and Mac, and then an API, so third-party developers can build other things. I don't have a lot of experience in Android, almost no experience, and so <laughs> a couple people have jumped in and built Android apps that work with micro.blog, and so it's, that's great to see. So ideally, we'd be available everywhere, but the core part is really, on the web, and then on Apple platforms that I know
0: and use every day. So what's been your biggest challenge, both developing the application, but also building your audience as well and running a business, so to speak?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, how do you get the word out? And I feel like with Blog, it's going really well, but it's growing slowly. And I feel like there's so many people that we have not reached yet that would love it and benefit from it. There was actually an article in the New Yorker this year about microblog and Mastodon and the indie web in general, that is the movement toward like these ideas I'm talking about about like getting back to posting on our own sites again and even something big like that like in the mainstream press. Yes, we got a lot of new people interested, but even that kind of stuff fades away after a couple of weeks and then you're back to the beginning. (laughs) Now I still have to reach, you know, more people. And how do I do that? So it is a challenge, but there's so many things to figure out that I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't have a huge spike of like millions of people on day one because it gives us time to add features, make things more robust, sort out all these questions about like, how do you? deal with community issues that come up? How do you just make simple things like posting to your blog, your microblog faster? So love to reach more people. <laughs> That's just a kind of a constant thing that we have to work at.
0: What have you found most surprising as far as audience growth? I don't know. I, unfortunately, I haven't
1: done a great job of tracking kind of where the audience is and where people come from. And, you know, I know there's a lot of people that, Maybe they stumble on an article, like I mentioned, or on my blog or podcast or something, and they find out about it. But only recently, I've started to track that better and also kind of be more proactive about when people do find out about it, keeping them in the loop. Because a lot of times, you know, someone will discover a service like micro.blog, they're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And they'll check it out, but then they will forget about it. Or, you know, they won't sign up for a paid subscription or they'll be confused by something. And so how do you keep those people engaged? and? One of the things I've started is a more regular mailing list, like a newsletter every week. And like I mentioned, you know, a few years ago, I had that mailing list, but that was really just an announce list. That was just like, okay, I've got all these people that think what I'm doing might be kind of interesting. I'm going to send them like one email, (laughs) but now I'm more interested in like, okay, how can I keep people interested in the loop and, you know, sending regular newsletters to highlight posts from the community, features, new apps, you know, just things that they might be interested in so that they don't forget about <laughs> what we're trying to do.
0: What do you use for your email newsletters? MailChimp right now? Yeah, that's what I use as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, it's super popular.
1: To be honest, it gets kind of expensive. I think we'll stick with it for now. But I know other people that have used other things, and so I'm kind of, I'm not necessarily going to use it forever, but it works. And, you know, we've used it off and on before this weekly newsletter. And so it was just really natural to just keep using it.
0: Yeah, I use MailChimp right now. It works pretty well. I really like that they've added automation features. I know a lot of the SaaS folks love ConvertKit. Mm -hmm. It almost gets to like a programming level of automation where you can be like, oh, this person read this email, send them this email if they didn't. Like you can get into a lot of the nitty gritty of automation. I know that that's been super helpful to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I don't use anything like that, but I should look into that more.
0: Well, at least you've made the first step, which is awesome.
1: Yeah. And also just the process of creating the newsletters right now, it's very manual and yep. kind of tedious. And I know there's a lot that I can improve to make that easier because that's every Monday I send this newsletter out. We On Monday, we call it Micro Monday. It's like a to recommend people to follow, and we have a podcast micro Monday, where we like you know our community manager Gene McDonald you know interviews someone from the community and kind of talks about you know how do you blog and like what are you interested in and so the newsletter is in line with that, and so every Monday that's like part of my <laughs> job is just like coming up with a newsletter and figuring out what to feature and what to post, so that could be automated much much better, and that would just kind of save a little time every week.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate those newsletters because it keeps me updated on to like, as far as the community and the platform and how it's moving forward. I think just even if people don't read every week, it's good to know, Hey, you're still alive. I think that's like much more important than we're willing to admit. Mm-hmm. What's the trajectory as far as how the audience has grown?
1: So you launched the Kickstarter. There were 3000 backers and that was, you know, over two years ago now. And we've just been, you yeah, know, not everybody stayed a micro.blog customer, but we've had a steady stream of people coming in, you know, over the last couple of years. And so it keeps growing in terms of the list and like t- more of like the marketing side and like how do you keep people in the loop that I don't have a good sense of quite yet. Because one of the things that happened when I started the mailing list, the newsletter is I, j- I decided to just send it to everybody. And knowing that a lot of people weren't interested in anymore and expecting there to be like a drop off at the beginning where like a whole bunch of people clicked unsubscribe and that happened and that's fine. So we're still in that phase of trying for the mailing list like audience to kind of settle out. So it hasn't really grown much (laughs) because there was this initial dip of people that were not necessarily wanting to pay attention anymore, which is, again, I expected that it's totally fine. And I haven't also, right now, it's really just for people who have already signed up. So I I haven't done anything to grow that list and that audience outside of people that have signed up. But I'd like to do that. I'd like to, you know, even going back to what I said earlier about, you know, on my blog, if you're interested in this, sign up on this mailing list. I don't do anything like that right now. And that's something that I could add to kind of grow the list and grow the reach of it.
0: Yeah, especially, do you have email addresses when people sign up for micro.blog? Okay,
1: that's a first step for sure. Yeah, it verifies the email. Like You can't do anything before you you sign up, you pick a username, you say what your name and your email address is, and before anything else can happen, you have to click a link in the email and verify that it's you, just to remove a bunch of potential problems with people creating thousands of accounts and spammers and just all sorts of problems that happen if you don't know that that person really has that email address. So we do have email addresses for everyone, which is really nice because also they sign up and again, maybe they don't pay right away and and have a paid subscription for us to host their blog for them. But, you know, we can send a reminder, you know, a few days in, hey, you still have this trial. Do you want to upgrade? Do you want to post to your blog? And that sort of thing is really nice to actually have a contact for the, the customer.
0: It's interesting you said that you used Kickstarter. What was the decision process and how did that work out? I think it worked out great. I did something that Kickstarter is not necessarily
1: a great fit for funding software, I think, but it is a great fit for projects that you create and then you deliver to someone, whether that's like some art project or whether that's like a device you're creating. You know, it's something you actually can deliver. And so one of the thoughts I had with Kickstarter was, not only am I going to build this platform and get that launch, but I'm going to write a book about indie microblogging, about why you should blog on your own site again, why you should have these tweet-like, you know, short posts on your own blog and how to do that. And so I promised, you know, to Kickstarter backers that it would also be this book. And so my idea there was that like even if you're not necessarily interested in the platform, micro.blog, even if you're already happy with your blog host and you don't need something different, then you still have this other perk of you get the book at the end of the campaign and I'm still working on finishing the book. I'm still writing. It's taking way longer than I thought, but (laughs) that was kind of part of that of like, well, this is actually a good fit for Kickstarter. It's like, I don't have the book written yet. I've worked on parts of it, but it's not done and Kickstarter can prove whether that kind of is a good idea. Like, are people actually interested? And it's taken me literally years now to finish writing the book. So good thing I know that there are people that are interested because otherwise, you know, why go through all of that? So that part of Kickstarter, I think, is really useful to, like, test an idea to see if it resonates with people.
0: That's what I was going to ask, Is it seems like it would be a great way to just test an idea, you know, besides having, like, just a mailing list. That's one way I've used to test an idea. but like. Yeah, just actually having people putting money down. Mm -hmm. How did you set that up as far as like pricing?
1: Yeah, I had a few different tiers on the Kickstarter campaign. I didn't want it to get out of control, so I would try to keep it really simple. But there was, I think, four or five tiers at the beginning with like $5, $10, $20. And it was like the basic support. You would get the book and access to like a beta version of micro.blog. And then if you paid a little bit more, then I would give you like two free months of blog hosting on micro.blog. You pay a little more and you get a year free. And then actually about halfway through the Kickstarter, decided to add like a lifetime tier where you pay $500 and you have unlimited, you know, free access to micro.blog forever. So that was really interesting to do. And so that was how the tiers were kind of broken up. It's like, how much is this book worth and how much is micro.blog worth at $5 a month? And so that was how the rewards kind of broke down. And I think generally that worked. The campaign funded within a day, you know, and it seemed to resonate with people. People seemed to be interested, even if not everyone understood exactly what I was trying to build (laughs) at the beginning, which I think is okay. Like, that's one nice thing about Kickstarter is like you have a video and you have the text and images maybe on it too. But especially the video is like your chance to pitch an idea to someone and they see you, there's a connection, like they see you seem like a regular person who has this idea, and then they can back it because they believe there might be something to it, even if they don't know 100% exactly where this is going to go. They're willing to take a small risk and yeah, back this project for $10, let's say, with the chance that something really great could come out of it. And so that, again, that's a really neat part of Kickstarter that like if I had just built the platform and launched it, I mean, it could have been great, could have been a huge success, but there might not have been as many people in that first week that tried it because instead of backing like the hope for this big idea, they would be putting down a subscription for something very specific that they may or may not need. And so the fact that Kickstarter is a little more general in that, in that sense, I think people are willing to take a risk and put down again ten dollars and see what happens. And I've definitely heard from some people that micro.blog wasn't exactly what they had in mind, but they were still really glad to fund the Kickstarter. And then other people that they really didn't know what they're getting into. And then they were super happy that it turned out the way it did, because micro.blog was like, kind of like that missing piece in the social network blogging world that they weren't sure what it should look like. But when they saw it, they were really glad they were early and back to the campaign.
0: Do you look back on and say you wished you did something differently when it comes to like starting the product and building that audience?
1: i definitely made a bunch of mistakes. I think one of the problems is just, I'm kind of impatient. I want to get stuff out there as soon as possible and the first versions of Microdot Blog were really rough. And the, I mean, it's so much better now. And there's so many more features. I mean, we've added podcast hosting, we've <laughs> added, you know, all full blogging and like categories and themes and designs and all sorts of stuff you can do. It's really powerful. And it's also faster and more robust than it used to be. And so when I look back on that first version that I gave to that initial audience of Kickstarter people, probably lost some folks because it just wasn't really ready. Like you really had to believe in the idea to right. stick with it.
0: Were you invite only in the beginning? Yeah, it was, at
1: the very beginning it was only Kickstarter people. Okay. And then some time after that, it was still kind of invite only. And I, I can't remember exactly how I handled that to be honest. I, I think I we did the Kickstarter, I worked on some things, and then a few months later I invited Kickstarter folks to try it out. And I had a beta version of the iOS app at that point. And I sent out a test flight invite for the iPhone app only to Kickstarter backers as well. So they had early beta access. And then the public launch was later in the year. And then so in between that kind of Kickstarter and the public launch, we invited people like just kind of as needed or as people expressed interest. And I guess it grew slowly kind of on purpose in that first like six months. And then we eventually open it up to the public.
0: Yeah. I mean, you want to have that delicate balance of not growing too fast to where you're just dealing with all sorts of issues, but not growing too slow to where it's, there is no demand for it essentially. So mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like you find a good comfortable fit in between.
1: Yeah. And especially because Blog is you know, I've talked about blogging and how you can have your own domain name and, you know, you can use micro.blog, like the apps, you can make it really easy to post, just like kind of tweeting. But there's also this community social network aspect. And the thing about social networks is like everybody wants all their friends to be there. And on day one, your friends aren't all there because it's brand new.
0: Yeah, that's a big challenge.
1: Yeah, and so that kind of network effect that a lot of social networks and social network-like platforms run into Most platforms don't survive that because Twitter and Facebook are huge now, and to compete directly with what they're doing is essentially impossible. And so, if you're growing really slowly at the beginning, you're hitting that problem too of not everybody's there, and so then some people don't want to join because they don't see you know who they're going to follow on the platform. And so, we had to make Microblog valuable even if not everybody is there yet. And so, again, that's kind of emphasizing. A great community and emphasizing it's an easy way to blog. For people who maybe they wanted to blog or they didn't know how or they just it's too much work. How do we get those people back and uh thinking about the user experience and just making it easier? And so that's a big key, and that's still a big key even today, a few years later. We still have to have value in the platform because again, not everybody's there. It's not as big as Twitter and it never will be.
0: One thing I've found with a lot of like your brand new social networks is that they tend to find a certain niche. Have you found like a certain niche with your audience? Like I know Mastodon does this where like you'll have separate individual channels for separate things, Reddit, which I mean, Reddit's massive, but still Reddit has like subreddits for specific topics. Have you found Mm -hmm. that like microblog has found, oh, people who are really interested in certain things like photography or technology. There tend to be sub-communities within micro.blog?
1: Yes and no. I don't think there's any one thing, but I, I do think that because it started with, again, kind of my audience in, in a lot of ways, which is more technical, and, and I think that you know, in a lot of ways we have to grow out of that, if that makes sense, because we don't want it to just be like Mac developers on the platform or right. iOS developers. You know, obviously, right. we want it much more diverse, lots of different backgrounds. So I think there is a little more technical, especially if you think about the IndieWeb community, which I've just kind of touched on briefly, but the IndieWeb is all about this kind of idea about having your own domain name and blogging and having your own site and kind of taking back social media from the big, massive social networks. Mm -hmm. Those folks tended to be programmers and more technical people. And so some of those are drawn to micro.blog as well. but. We want this to be accessible to everybody. So there's no reason why it should stay that way. But the beginning, I think it kind of was. But I mean, you mentioned photography. That's another good one where I think when some people struggle to figure out, okay, what do I post to my blog or what do I post to micro.blog? One of the first things I say is photos. Like everybody has amazing camera, you know, not everybody, but everybody that has a smartphone or an iPhone or whatever has a great camera that they can take amazing photos with. And that's a really great default way to get back into microblogging and posting things, just post photos like you would to Instagram and post them to your own site. And so lots of great photographers on micro.blog. I don't know if they have a background in photography. I just know when I look through the timeline and when I look at the photos section and the discover section of micro.blog that we have, there's just amazing stuff. And so... There's not like one, to answer your question, not like one kind of thing that's surfaced, but there's a few types of topics that kind of keep coming up. And there's technical stuff, there's photography, there's books and writing. There's a lot of writers. You know, obviously, people that are fascinated with blogging love to write to some extent. So a lot of people that love books and reading and writing. And one of the challenges is like, how do we keep growing so that the platform is even more diverse? Because we don't want it to be stuck in any one thing. We definitely want a wide variety of folks that want to check it out and could get value
0: from it. Right. That makes total sense. Yeah, it seems like you have to have a delicate balance of finding a niche so that you're really servicing that community, but also diversity so you're not dependent on one specific community as well. Yeah, and I think there's a lot
1: more we could do when we see a part of the community start to take off. There's more we could do to like encourage it. And a lot of that is the discovery aspect of like, how can we improve discovery so that it's easier to find people that share your interests? And that's just going to be, that's not like something that will just be done with. That's like, I think an ongoing challenge that we can improve.
0: Yeah. I mean, all social media networks have that issue anyways. So Mm -hmm. that's not surprising. Have you ever read the book Traction by Gabriel Weinberg?
1: Yeah, I have. Actually, it's on my list to re look at again because it's been a little while since I looked at it. And I think I read it before Microdot Blog or right as I was doing it. And I think I could get a lot out of it if I looked at it again.
0: Yeah, my other podcast, OK Productive, we're running through exercises within that book for growing our podcast. And it's like there are parallels I could see with DuckDuckGo and Microdot Blog. And it's almost interesting how. He didn't necessarily want to compete with Google, but he found a particular niche with the security and privacy aspect. Right. And that seemed super helpful. And I always, if I had a dollar for every time somebody's come up to me and told me that they have their own social media app that won't made it build, I wouldn't need to have a trade. <laughs> like there's definitely a pain there. It's just a matter of like, yeah, like you said, the aggregation and things like that. And what I've found with like Blog is, it seems like that slow growth has helped it build up over time.
1: Yeah. And again, there has to be something there besides the social network. And I think that's a mistake that pretty much every social network makes is they think we'll be just like Twitter, but instead of X, we'll have Y. And we only need, you know, 10 percent of their users to blah, blah, blah. It's not going to work. Yep. Ninety nine percent of the time. And there has to be some other reason. And for us, that other reason is the indie web and blogging and like getting to something where you can get value out of this thing to post your photos to your own site every day to start a podcast as easily as possible. It has to be that value you can get out of this, even if the social network is not big. And I think that's going to work. But you know, it's again, something we just have to keep working on.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to talk, since this is mostly about Apple development, I wanted to talk specifically about the Apple development side of things. So explain to me kind of server, how that's developed, what's that hosted on, how that's worked out, and then talk about your native clients as well. So how is the server development? How did it get started and where has it moved to?
1: Yeah, it started and is still in Ruby. It's hosted on Linode, and I've got a handful of servers. It actually uses Ruby Sinatra instead of Rails. And I've done a bunch of Rails development, but at the time that I was starting micro.blog, I just wanted something like really lightweight and simple. And so so I use Ruby, MySQL, Redis, different things on the back end. I've got a bunch of... um, it is a whole kind of workflow of like how you get a blog published and it uses Jekyll, uh, not Jekyll, it used to use Jekyll, it uses Hugo behind the scenes for all the themes on a blog. So it's kind of a combination of things, but Ruby is the main language for all the server stuff.
0: So is it all, is it static generated then, I guess, or is it because you're using Sinatra, Sinatra doesn't build web pages necessarily, right? It's all just a REST API? Yeah, Sinatra is just
1: for kind of the glue to put everything together. Yeah, just the, the controllers and the, the API and all that kind of thing. And then the backend is actually like a few different components. And there's like the core app, which is Ruby. And then there's things like photo storage. Like, how does that work? And then there's your actual blog. If, if you pay us $5 a month, we'll host a blog for you at your own domain name. And then we have servers for that. And your site, when you publish a blog, is actually statically generated and served just with Nginx, and it's super fast. And what we have in Microdot Blog is like a front end for all of that. So like a web interface for managing your posts, editing, assigning categories, editing themes, that sort of thing. And then also the API and then our apps for posting or third-party apps for posting. And all of that happens through the Ruby layer. Yeah, when you actually click post on Blog, it generates html and publishes your photos and serves that up like as a static site like 99 percent static there's a couple things that the hook in there's just like a whole background queue system that <laughs> that i've built for okay okay how that all works i mean it's when you post to your blog it goes into mysql and again there's like a whole web interface for managing it or native apps for posting and then it fires off some stuff in the background to generate the HTML for your theme, and then pushes that to the server that's hosting your blog. And that sounds like a lot. And sometimes in the past, that's been slower than I'd like. But now it's super fast. I mean, you hit post and, you know, your post is there within a second or two. And then from that, the timeline in micro.blog, the kind of social network, Twitter-like part pulls from all the blogs that are out there, you know, your blog feed and then generates this timeline of, of showing posts from people you're following.
0: Is it statically generated or is that just pulled from the server? The timeline,
1: the timeline it's not statically generated, but it is like heavily kind of pre-cached in a way. So like, okay. Yeah. It uses Redis to keep track of all the timelines for everybody. So it doesn't need to, like if I'm following like 50 people and I want to get all their posts and all their replies, it doesn't need to, do some weird join in the database and like gather all that, it already knows every post that I need to see in the timeline. Gotcha. And so I tried to learn a little bit from what Twitter had said publicly years back. Twitter had a lot of scaling problems way back in the early days with the fail whale appearing all the time.
0: Yes. And
1: yeah, Twitter now is pretty stable, really fast. But it took them a while to get through that phase of like, okay, that first thing we built that was twitter.com in the early <laughs> days, like it not scaled to millions and millions of people and it did not scale to people that have millions of followers. And they slowly like rebuilt different components of the app. And they said a little publicly about like some of the challenges they faced and what they learned. And so I kind of remembered some of that and I tried to incorporate some of what they learned into the first version of micro.blog and it could always be better and faster. But the way the timeline works is kind of similar to some of the things that I know that people that have built social networks have run into.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. All the like little technical things you learn along the way. It's almost it's an educational experience to say the least. Yeah,
1: no, that's true. And it's it's a constant thing. I mean, as we grow, you know, we'll need to scale things up even more. And some assumptions that I made, you know, a year ago, will need to be revisited. That's
0: fine. Our sponsor this week is Digit. Bright Digit is my company and we specialize in helping businesses build apps for the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple Watch, and the Mac. I've been building apps for iOS for almost 10 years now. We have an opening for new projects. If you are a company who might already have developers but need help building something for any of the Apple platforms, send me an email and let's see what Bright Digit can do for you. Contact me personally at leo at brightdigit.com. That's leo at brightdigit.com. And let's see how I can help you and your business. Did you start off developing it as like an open API, and then thinking you're going to allow other developers to build third party clients, or well, it seemed like that was one of your major pain points with Twitter, right? And it's only gotten worse since then by a lot as far as like third party clients. So was that always your original intention? Was build an open API and then have third party clients access it?
1: Yes, absolutely. From day one, that was definitely the intention just cuz like you said I had been frustrated with Twitter's the going in the opposite direction of like closing the API and wanting everyone to use their official apps and and they felt they needed to do that because they're an ad supported platform and they need control over the eyeballs and like you know how many times do you see this tweet and you know where how do you show the ads in the timeline so they didn't want the twitterifics and the tweet bots and the third party apps because that doesn't fit as well with their business model. And I don't have that problem. No ads, right? You know, the way micro.blog works is you can use it for free or you can pay us to host a blog and that subscription pays for everything, right? So I don't need to worry about how you're viewing the timeline. Just that, yeah, I don't even need to care if you're engaged in like reloading the timeline every hour, every day. That doesn't matter. So Mm. you can use any app you want. And so that's very freeing. I really like that aspect. So yeah, open API from the very beginning. One thing that changed from the Kickstarter to launch was I rediscovered the IndieWeb community and the fact that they were doing the same kind of things in terms of like, here's an API specification that we have put through the W3C and it's a standard and wherever I could, I would just adopt that. So as an example for posting The very first prototype for micro.blog, I had my own API for sending a blog post. And when I realized some of the work on the Indie website, I just scrapped that part of my API and I adopted their API. It's called MicroPub. And it's actually improved a lot over the last couple of years. And the nice thing about that is someone could build an app for posting to a blog that works with micro.blog, but also works with other platforms. And that's how things should work. I do not want us to have a you know, world where every single platform needs a separate app just for them. We should have apps that work with a variety of platforms. And so open from the start, but I definitely, as I've definitely, as I can, I've adopted more standards, like the IndieWeb standards in particular, and even super old blogging standards. Like if people remember way back in the early days, there was an API based on XMLRPC. Wow! blogger and wordpress and and i support that too because that's also awesome. still apps like mars Edited on the mac is an app i love it's it uses that api so i kind of support multiple apis in some places so that i can have the most compatibility with different things
0: so with that open api has there been anything you've had to do with your open api not necessarily to protect it from abuse but like just being hammered or being over some bug than some client that ends up breaking the website. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, ever had to deal with situations like that?
1: Not yet. It's only a matter of time, probably before something like that would happen. So far, all the apps and even like little scripts that people write, like someone will write a script to import their old blog into Blog. None of that has caused a problem that I can really think of yet. There's been a couple times where I've done something, like something's not very optimized on the server and things have, there's been kind of a backlog of like queued items in the background and different work and it's kind of overloaded. But usually that's like a bug that I can just fix or optimize so that it runs faster. In terms of apps, um, the apps that people have written have been very great <laughs> citizens of the API and the platform. I mean, it's, uh haven't run into any problems and I love some of the third-party apps. I'm really glad that I can point people to them.
0: Do you have like a API key of some sort or is it just a matter of just go ahead and use the API at any point?
1: Instead of an API key that developers have to register, it's based on authentication kind of at the user level with gotcha. tokens. In the old days with Twitter, the Twitter API, it's kind of hard to remember this far back sometimes, but <laughs> there was no API key actually. Like third-party Twitter apps just used Twitter usernames, username and password, and that had problems, but it was also really kind of freeing because you could just build an app and like Twitter couldn't say stop, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they moved away from that. And yeah, you need to register your app with Twitter, and that allowed them to lock things down. And for some platforms, I think that's that's okay, but for Micro.blog, I really wanted to let developers just have fun with it. And I wanted as few roadblocks as possible. So it's a lot simpler than working with a lot of APIs, I think.
0: So you've developed a native app for both the Mac and iOS, correct? Yep. What have you found your biggest challenge developing for both of those platforms and going back and forth?
1: We don't have a lot of shared code between them. I think that has been a challenge, especially because it's, you know, you add one feature in the Mac version and then got to figure out how does this fit on iOS. I knew I wanted them to be separate apps with slightly different user interfaces that could embrace the platform. There is some shared, like the timeline part of both apps is a lot of shared code, but like the general UI and buttons and different things like that are just written from scratch separately. So that's kind of a challenge, especially with such a tiny team. It's like it it's those apps are not working on those apps every day necessarily. And so kind of have to if I build a feature in one app and ship it, kinda of have to go back and dust off the other app and figure out how to sync them up or what makes sense. And features being out of sync, that can be a little bit annoying. The Mac app, I decided not to put it in the Mac App Store. So I just distribute it myself and that. I really enjoy that because I can just I can work on it, I can build a feature and I can just ship it to customers right away. And so a lot of times that will go out first and then the iOS app will lag behind a little bit. And again, that's that's annoying, that's a little bit challenging and frustrating, but it's with a small team, it's just really difficult to work on multiple apps simultaneously and then ship them at the same time. It's just uh, again, I get kind of impatient. I want these features to get out to customers as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you said you don't have a lot of shared code between both platforms. Is there a reason for that? Like, especially with data structures that are similar, I think there'd be some shared code. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the UI stuff is pretty different, unless, you know, somehow you go catalyst in the next few months. (laughs) Like, your UI stuff is going to be pretty different, but your data structures and your, like, API calls should be pretty much the same. Was there a decision why you didn't want to do that? Not a really a
1: good reason. So in the past, sometimes I've had projects that have a lot of shared code between them. And sometimes that holds things back because you'll you'll make a change in the shared code and then it'll break something in the other app. And you gotta kinda work on it. you gotta think about both apps at the same time. And I think at the time I did the iPhone app first, and then later, it might have even been a year later, I did the Mac version. For whatever reason, I didn't know exactly where the Mac version was going. I just kind of wanted it to be its own thing. So There is some shared code, but there's also a lot of code that if you would look at it, you'd think like, oh, you just kind of copy and pasted that between projects and like Mm -hmm. it diverged and it was really difficult to manage. So some of that at some point, maybe we'll consolidate and bring back together so that it's more in sync. One of the things that we did this year is we built a iOS and Mac framework for working with the micro.blog API. And also some of the IndieWeb APIs, Uh, it's called Snippets, and we open source that. And the plan is to eventually integrate that into all our apps. Right now, that framework is being used in a separate iPhone app we have called Sunlit, which is just for photos. It's kind of like Instagram, but based on blogs. So, you you know, you follow your micro.blog people. But you see the timeline, there's just photos, and there's different features around posting photos. And so that app now uses that framework, and eventually I can see that framework expanding and making its way to the other app. So that'll be a little more shared code in terms of data structures and API calls. And so that'll be be really nice, because if there are bugs, they can go everywhere. But it's taken us a little while to transition to that. Um, Jonathan Hayes built that shared code, that framework, and... I know he's really ready for me to <laughs> start integrating it more with <laughs> the other apps but it's a completely different. So our Mac and iOS apps are primarily written in Objective C and that new framework is all Swift and nothing is a problem with mixing Swift and Objective C but my point is that code is all completely brand new and so it may work exactly the same as <laughs> the Mac right, right. Objective C code or there may be subtle differences right and so that's why we haven't integrated everything yet. But that is the plan. And by open sourcing that, we were also hoping that it would help other people building micro.blog and just regular, you know, blogging-related apps and um, give them a little bit of a head start of having a framework.
0: What has been your most interesting challenge developing for both of those platforms?
1: Great question. I think just having enough time. I, I don't I really don't think there's a technical challenge. I think it's just there's so many things to do. We have the backend that I kind of described a little bit and maintaining the servers and you know, responding to people and adding features. And there's so much to work on with the platform that it's difficult sometimes to make enough time to work on the apps. I said I'm not working on those apps every single day. I would love to be in a place where we had a slightly bigger team where there would be someone that could be working on that the iPhone app, for example, every day. So any technical challenges I feel like we've run into, they're not really technical. They're just like, we haven't dedicated enough time to solving that. And that's a little bit frustrating sometimes because things could move faster than they are right now.
0: What do you find is the biggest difference between developing on the Mac and developing on iOS?
1: Mostly the UI. So you know, on the Mac, you have AppKit, which is a fairly old API, I guess. And then UIKit on iOS had kind Of a nice refresh and like a lot of more modern, just easier ways to do things. So, like, I don't have anything against AppKit, but I feel like it's usually a little bit faster to work on the, the iPhone version, especially because, like, when I started the Mac version, I hadn't done a lot of Mac development day to day in a couple right. years, and it took a little while to get into it. Once I got into it, it was really fun, but I would say just thinking about the UI and how do you build something so that it works on that platform like on the Mac, for example, like how do you build something that feels at home? And there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, simple things like the first version you couldn't resize the window with. (laughs) That was kind of a technical challenge because like when I added it, I wasn't happy with the way the timeline relayed out. And when you were doing like a live resize. And so I just said, you know what, rather than that looking bad, I'm just going to not let it resize. And eventually finally added that back, but that was something that people are really annoyed by because it's like not really Mac standard to like not be able to resize this window.
0: When you're in that early startup phase though, you just want something to work. Like you said, like it's almost like an MVP. So like, I totally understand. You don't want to have to resize the window.
1: Well, and a lot of it too, it was like my thinking was, okay, there's this Mac app and yeah, it's rough in places and it could be more Mac like, and it could be better but it's already just having it is a big step up right. from using the web version right, on the exactly. Mac. And there's some things that don't feel super native in it, even though it is a completely native app. But then there are other things that we can just do way better with a native app than the web version. So like a post, for example, like writing a new post and having the, all the text editing there and like syntax highlighting for Markdown and all this sort of thing. Like that stuff just works better in a native app, usually, than a mm-hmm. web app. And so, yeah, exactly what you said. My thought was just, having native app even if it's only 50% of what we really would love it to be is still better. It's better to get that out and let people use it.
0: Do you have any plans of moving UI kit over to the Mac with uh Catalyst enabled?
1: I don't think for the microdot blog app, but for sunlit our photos app, I think maybe because okay. it would be really nice to have that kind of again more of an Instagram like like photo blogging experience on the Mac. I think that would be really fun. So We're gonna experiment with that. It would definitely requires rethinking the UI a little bit on the Mac. So even though we will use Catalyst, it's not gonna just be rebuild and ship it. It's that I think that would be a really bad experience. So that is not a priority, but that is something that I'd like to experiment
0: with more. How have you handled like feedback from other folks as far as because I know you're pretty active on microblog, getting back with people when they have questions? What have you found? As far as the best way to handle it, yeah,
1: and I mean, I try to be responsive, but I mean, I, a lot of things slip through the cracks. Still, yeah, I answer all the support email, and it's really important, especially when someone's first joining, to get them the best experience. And again, yeah, I don't do a perfect job of that, but I try to try to get better and get replies, you know, as quickly as possible.
0: It's almost like triage. It's like you got to prioritize what's really important and get that out of the way. Like when you have so much feedback. Yeah,
1: and there's also some things on the back end too that, again, getting kind of back to automation that I could do a better job of. Because sometimes when some questions that people ask have just a simple answer, but some require me to like click some buttons or go in the console and type some stuff. In some cases, like mess with the database or, you know, there's a lot of things like that, that I could simplify so that I could not just reply, but help those people more quickly. I'm always looking for places like that, that I can make things smoother. But yeah, right now we have the people can reply and ask me questions just on micro.blog if they want. Email is really the best. People send email because that's, you know, it's kind of offline. I can have longer answers and it's just usually better. And then we also have a Slack channel. People ask questions in that, and that's great because other people in the community can jump in too and help. And then we also, on GitHub, we have an issues database where people can file bugs and feature requests. And eventually everything, uh, in terms of like bug tracking, everything will move there. Like right now, I still track some things just kind of on my own, but having everything in GitHub, I think long-term will be really nice.
0: Anything else you want to mention about micro.blog and its development? Uh no,
1: I mean that's uh, phew, I think we covered a lot. We kind of jumped around a little, so I don't know if I gave a totally clear picture of what it is, but <laughs> this is the thing that, you know, I work on full time. I hope to be working on it for many, many years. And I just think a lot of people are really frustrated with the big social networks, whether that's privacy problems with Facebook, whether that's harassment on Twitter, whether that's just having these few places where content can live and I think people are looking for something new and I'm glad that we can step up and say hey this is something we built and you know from the the development side and the technical you know side it's just learning stuff every day every week trying to make it better and I know like the last 2 years it's so much better now than it was when we launched and so I'm very excited to imagine what it will be like
0: a year from now and how much better it will be Where can people go if they want to get on Microdot Microdot blog. That's where you go. It's cool. <laughs> the domain name. So you just <laughs> sign up right on there.
1: Awesome. Just sign up right there. Yep. Super simple.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on Manta. And before we go, I want to get your thoughts from a developer perspective, as far as what the next iPhone is going to mean for developers, if it'll mean anything for that matter. Cause it seems like every year, I want to say it's like gone more and more into the background, but it's... It's a much more matured platform than it used to be, where big changes would happen. I don't know what Mm -hmm. do you think as far as the next iPhone is going to be concerned, because other than adding another lens to the bag, I don't know what else is going to matter to
1: to folks. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right that the device is so mature now that I think fewer and fewer people, even developers, will feel the need that they have to get the latest phone. So my phone is the iPhone 10. I've had it for two years now. I, I didn't get last year's iPhone, because this one is perfect for me. I mean, it's no problems. It's fast. Um, I really like it. And so that's kind of, I think most normal users are going to be in that kind of pattern where it's like every few years, maybe they'll upgrade. But it's not like it used to be where the jump from the
0: 5 to 6,
1: 3GS to the 4, the 5 to 6. Yeah, definitely like any screen size changes. But even just when everything was a smaller screen, I mean, the jumps were just enormous in terms of functionality, like the camera being so much better uh, or the screen, you know, with the first retina display. Well, I don't think we see that anymore, which is fine because it just indicates that the product is really, really great. And, you know, even the low end iPhone is really, really nice. I do think photography is the one thing. I mean, you mentioned new lenses and that's probably the biggest thing personally that the reason I will upgrade Every once in a while, at least, if not every year, and I do think that's also something that developers can get excited about. Because, I mean, for, people love to take photos. I mentioned, you know, we want to on Microdot Blog to have great experience for taking photos and posting them to your own site. And there's so much opportunity for developers to build things around photography. So if Apple does nothing except just make the camera a little bit better <laughs> every year,
0: right? I'm good with that. Yeah, and I remember like when the XS came out. That was pretty much the only thing was like the the new camera and all the new machine Mm -hmm. learning stuff involved there. If there's any device, it seems like where there's big rapid changes is the watch. Like that's where we're seeing every year like a massive update to the device Mm -hmm. is on the watch. It's almost like it's moved to that.
1: Yeah, it, it feels a little more like the early days of the iPhone, where it's really every year. Now, of course, I still have an old Apple Watch because I'm kind of stuck in my ways and I don't use it much for, except for fitness and notifications. But what do you have right now? That is exciting. I haven't had really much feedback from people about like a Micro.blog watch app because I think for most people, just getting the notifications, like if you get a reply on Micro.blog, right. just getting that notification on your watch is fine and you don't need a watch app for that. But as the watch becomes more independent from the phone, I'd be very curious, you know, if I hear from people that, would like something more on the watch. And I could see, this might sound a little weird, but I could see podcasting maybe possibly working from... Like recording
0: audio using the watch mic? Is yeah, like what
1: you're saying? short little things, like as you're out and about and you want right, to right. do this podcast hosting now to encourage, mostly short podcasts, but just people who want to post something and they don't want a bunch of overhead of like producing a quote-unquote real podcast like the one we're talking on right now. They just want something short and simple that they can put out and we'll handle the podcast feed and stuff. I can see maybe some of that, like you're out walking and you just like talk to your watch and I don't know. I just. That's interesting. I'm stretching a little bit, but I'm trying to come up with like, what could we do on the watch that would actually be useful to people? And.
0: I feel like you get a lot with notifications. It's almost like to a point where you don't necessarily need an app because there's so much you could do with notifications. But yeah, it's interesting. I'll put that on my bucket list of watch apps to make when I have time. Sounds good. Yeah. And
1: that might be like getting back to third-party developers. I mean, a watch may be a perfect thing for a third-party developer to handle. I would be perfectly happy with like the basic. Micro.blog needs like a basic app for people to get just use out of the box. And I think that's uh, for anyone who is like on app.net or some other social networks that have kind of come and gone. That's a problem that some of them have had of not having just like out of the box, here's the iPhone app. So we need that, but we don't need to have the best one. And we don't need to have the one that's on every platform or on the watch. And so I'm happy to point to third-party developers that want to play with that stuff.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Manton. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Where can people get a hold of you?
1: So uh, micro.blog, I'm I'm Manton on micro.blog. And my main blog is the best way to keep track of what I'm up to because uh, I post there every day and that's manton.org and if you're only on Twitter and you don't want to read blogs or <laughs> look at micro.blog all my blog posts are cross-posted to Twitter automatically by micro.blog and that's at manton's blog on Twitter
0: cool thank you so much for coming on and if people want to get a hold of me they can reach me on Twitter at leogdion uh, micro.blog leogdion we also have if you want to reach Talk about the podcast. That's at BrightDigit, my company address, brightdigit.com. We're also on Instagram and Facebook as well. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Thanks for having me.